0: Sick of the fatigue and fog? Fed up with the unpredictable flares? Hangry from the super restrictive diets? Hello, and welcome to the Crunchy Allergist podcast, a podcast empowering those who, like me, appreciate both a naturally-minded and scientifically-grounded approach to health and healing. Hi, I'm your host, Dr. Kara Wada, quadruple board-certified pediatric and adult allergy immunology and lifestyle medicine physician Sjogren's patient, and life coach. My recipe for success combines anti-inflammatory lifestyle, trusting therapeutic relationships, modern medicine, and mindset to harness our body's ability to heal. Now, although I might be a physician, I'm not your physician, and this podcast is for educational purposes only. Welcome back to this episode of the Crunchy Allergist podcast. My name is Dr. Cara Wada. I'm a board-certified allergist, immunologist, lifestyle medicine doc and systemic Sjogren's patient, we talk about all things allergy, autoimmunity, and anti-inflammatory living. And we really think about that in the broadest sense. I am so, so excited to introduce to you an amazing woman that I was able to meet Last month, when we both made our TED Talk debut in DeSoto, yay. Texas, yay! <laughs> so Ms. Kiva Harper is an absolutely incredible human. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and she specializes in trauma-focused psychotherapy. She's been doing this for more than two decades, and she has emerged as one of the nation's foremost thought leaders in trauma treatment. She speaks and consults extensively. She's a frequent mental health correspondent on network TV and radio, a contributing writer to industry trades, and a social media influencer, and a TEDx speaker. Yeah, we um, gotta add that. <laughs> yes, she has won like all the awards when it comes to being a social worker and faculty at University of Texas Arlington. She is just I'll let y'all meet her. Thank you so much, Kiva, for joining me and taking time out of your busy schedule to talk and share your story. Thank yeah. you for having
1: me. You were the first person I connected with at the venue for the TED Talk.
0: We were both the early birds.
1: Yes, we were. We
0: showed up when we were told to. <laughs> we, were. we were. Follow the rules. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe you could just kind of briefly share a little bit about how did you end up in social work and how did you Mm -hmm. end up on the TEDx stage?
1: That's actually, I'm going to do an abbreviated version of that. Mm -hmm. I did not know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And ironically, I... I thought I was going to be a doctor because that's what my dad told me that I was going to do. He said, you're smart and you're good at math and science, so you can be a doctor. I just said, okay. And throughout my coursework, I realized I didn't really like the sciences. So then I switched to business because I was good at math and I was an accounting major. Those weren't my people either. And then I started looking again and I got to criminal justice, which was in a school of community service. Funny that social work is there too, but I didn't think about social work. So I got a degree in criminal justice. But what I realized is during my coursework, I was so intrigued by the minds of the serial killers. That's not mm-hmm. weird, but that's what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And I took a course on family violence shortly before I was about to graduate. It was a social work course and elective. That's when I knew that those were my people. I did an internship at the district attorney's office in Dallas in the family violence division I did affidavits for protective orders. Doing that work as an intern back in the 90s, I'm working with these men and women. They're telling me these stories of trauma, of abuse. I'm documenting it and completing this affidavit. Then when we're done, it's okay, bye. And I never see them again. I knew obviously that role is necessary, but I knew that wasn't the way I wanted to help. I wanted to walk with them more through it. So it was during that internship that I knew I wanted to be a therapist. By this time, I was almost done with undergrad. And so I was gonna have to go to grad school anyway. So I finished, went to grad school, social work was definitely, all of my courses, everything. I'm like, these are my people, the core values of the profession are my core values. Everything fit perfectly. The trauma, it just came as a specialty because I don't know what it is, but I'm drawn to Help people navigate the icky stuff. I really am. Domestic violence, sexual assault, family members, survivors of suicide. Those are my people. And that's what I enjoy.
0: We're now learning how vitally important that is to address. Yes. In not only healing of our hearts and our minds, but quite literally our bodies too. Literally our bodies. So very true. Yeah, Most of the the interventions
1: that I use um, involve some sort of body work because we know that trauma is stored in the body and it keeps rearing its head in order to fully heal. There are a lot of cognitive behavioral treatments out there and they help desensitize you. But until you really do the body work, you know, that somatic healing, you're just not going to truly be free. You can no longer meet the criteria for PTSD. And that's what a lot of people don't know. They feel like this is something I'm going to have to learn to live with and manage my entire life. That's not necessarily true. That's
0: so incredibly powerful. I think, especially as we're thinking about the times we're living in when so many people have suffered certainly trauma firsthand over the last several years with all of our, the social movements going on and political movements and civil unrest. Yeah. And have lost family members due to the pandemic, but we all have witnessed that too. It doesn't necessarily, and this is, and I'm saying this because I'm just learning this in this last week that really we can vicariously experience trauma and not also can be just as problematic.
1: Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. I think a lot of people don't realize just the collective trauma we've all endured over the last few years with the pandemic. And we've had so much loss, not only the loss of lives, but the loss of life the way we knew it. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you've probably seen that chart that talks about kids and the last time they had a normal school. And that's amazing. You have kids that are in elementary school that have some of them have never had a normal school year so all of these milestones of things you wanted to celebrate things you wanted to do the pandemic affected that so collectively we've all dealt with the trauma just with the pandemic and then we're not going to even talk about the civil unrest, the things that are going on politically, the things that are going on socially. And then I don't know about you, but life still happens for me personally too. And it's a lot, it's a lot. And vicariously, absolutely. We can be affected and we can be affected directly as well.
0: Yeah. And then that icing on the cake, we're all isolated, (laughs) which just adds lighter fluid to this already burning inferno. Exactly.
1: Vicarious trauma is absolutely very real. That's one of the things I was taught a lot about in grad school because of the work that we do and the work that I do, especially I hear so much. I have to really be very intentional about my self-care because Hearing these stories over and over again, it's bound to affect you.
0: That's what came up so much. We're recording this the week after I came back from this physician coaching conference. And we're talking about the role of burnout in healthcare professionals. How, especially through medical training and the culture that has perpetuated through medical training for so long, mm-hmm. self-care has always been deemed as selfish in many ways, yeah. When really it is an act of self-preservation that we need to be. And it's the ethical thing
1: to do. Because when you're impaired, even emotionally, it affects your decision-making, all of those things. So self-care is essential mm. and absolutely not selfish. Not bubble baths and massages only those are great those are nice i do indulge but (laughs) also boundaries setting limits things like that those things are so important it's very important that my in my personal life that i have healthy reciprocal relationships if i had people that were sucking the life out of me and did the work that i do there's no way no I wanted to add another point. You said, when you talked about burnout, you're so right. We learn about burnout. We learn about vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue. But I came up on this concept that I never heard about in grad school. And it explains perfectly why I do what I do. Many people have told me, like, don't you, isn't it depressing to hear these stories all the time? And I've never been able to articulate that it's not that. It's not depressing for me. It's hard to hear sometimes, but I get something from it. And so I stumbled across this term in a journal article, and it's called vicarious resilience. And oh, that is yes, with yes. Uh, these men and women that allow me to hold space for them and tell me their most intimate mm. traumatic events that have occurred. And I see how they manage that and they keep going. I get something from that. So that's what makes my work so rewarding because I work with some amazing people that are trying to rebuild their lives after some really icky things have happened. And so I get a lot from that. And it really balances out. I have to, of course, watch out for burnout. But vicarious resilience is a gift that I get from doing the work that I do.
0: I like that. It's this idea of like, when you are surrounded by folks that have a positive mindset in different ways, you can get this, they call it the positive vortex where it, yes. you know, all yes. rising tides lift all ships yes. that yes. it really, you can see that magnify.
1: So true. Mm. Yes.
0: Would you mind sharing a little bit about your TED talk story and kind yes. of how you got there?
1: Yes. That one was, it was difficult to come up with a topic because naturally I want to go towards trauma. But I really, when I saw the theme that was beyond all limits, I really wanted to do something that was a little more personal to me. And I lost my mom a couple of years ago and it was actually really horrible. We didn't even know she was ill and she got, she, had, she was having shortness of breath and had a heart attack. And we found out that her heart was only functioning at like 20% of its capacity. And over the years, I always worried about my mom because she had such a distrust for the medical community and she always thought she knew better. And so she would decide what she would do and what she wouldn't do based on what they recommended. But always knew that was probably going to be her demise and it ended up being that way. So in my professional life, I've been in the process of decolonizing my therapy practice because so much of the medical industrial complex and other systems are, they're colonized. And when I think about the BIPOC communities and people that look like me, I have to remember psychiatry was not, we weren't thought of. As a matter of fact, when, uh. It? a couple of years ago, the APA, American Psychiatric Association, released a statement apologizing to the BIPOC community for mm-hmm. not only perpetuating racism, but being complicit by not saying things when other things happen, example of uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. And so when that statement came out, other professional organizations released similar statements. And that led me down the path of researching things that happened early on and so when I did that I'm like this system was absolutely not created for us and so I started learning more about how we traditionally heal people of African descent how we traditionally healed and what that looked like and so I've just been on a journey of incorporating that into my practice and and just being more open and reading about theorists that are not all white men (laughs) because that's what I taught. I think yeah. a couple of women, but when I was in school, it was mostly all white men. So I'm just trying to grow in that area. And so when I think about my mom and her distrust, you know, while it bothered me, I certainly understood why she had it. And then as I look at my other family members, I told the story in my TED Talk of an aunt. She's born in 1923. And in Dallas, Parkland, or one of those is an amazing hospital. I actually used to work there. I was born there. and <laughs> but when she was young at about 18 she went there and it was still segregated and she had to be seen she called it the black parkland it was in the basement and they she, I guess she was having some pains or something and they found out she had either one or a couple of fibroid tumors something completely treated but she got a full hysterectomy robbing her of her fertility before she was even 20 years old and as I like see that, and then I see my grandmother, who's 10 years younger than a great aunt. She is the she's the one that whatever her doctor says, she's from the silent generation. So whatever her doctor says, she's gonna do. And doesn't ask any questions and doesn't say anything, the, the exact opposite of my mom. And I told the story about her getting some lab results that no one explained to her. And in her trying to read it, she was so upset. I've never seen my grandmother cry. She's crying because she thought that she was dying and no one had spent the time explaining it, the labs to her. And I knew that couldn't possibly be right. Surely they would have told her in a different way. And so I read them and in my little bit of medical jargon that I have figured, that's not what it was saying, but I wanted someone to explain it. And I called a, a nurse friend who did that for her, but back to my mom, that distrust I don't know that there was anything that could have been done about that. I used to try to help her find a doctor that she was more comfortable with, but I think because of bad experiences in the past, she was just not willing and she didn't yeah. believe that she was cared about, which caused her to neglect her health and to die prematurely. Her heart issues, if they had been treated for 20 years with a cardiologist, we probably wouldn't have been there. And what resulted is her having quadruple bypass surgery. And after that surgery, I don't know if anesthesia, I don't know what it was. I never had my mom fully back. She had problems with cognition every since she awoke from the surgery. And we would have moments where she was clear, but largely, cognitively, she just never was fully back. And so it, it was sad and unfortunate. But I also know that my mom would be pleased with me sharing her story if it helped other people.
0: Yeah, I think as we were talking a little bit before we hit record, there's this idealized, I think, thought as to, oh, maybe we need to go back to a different time when medicine was more about the doctor and the patient really communicating and having more time because that is one aspect that has changed considerably. But if you think back to that time, we tend to go back with this idea of a nostalgic thought process. But the reality is for women, in particular women of color, there's never been that happy place. It was at that point, it would have been typically a much more paternalistic relationship of, as doctor says, doctor's the God. Yeah, And we've maybe evolved a little bit more into the superhero for a while there. And now this evolution, I think that at least is the paradigm I'm working towards is let's really recognize the full humanity of one another as Mm -hmm. someone who's called to heal in whatever way that is. And whoever is suffering. I love that. I love that. And realizing it goes both ways. It goes both ways. It's really the sacred communication. And it's unfortunate there are so many different things trying to interfere with that. But
1: it's a collaboration. It's not one person. In the position of power, telling the other person what to do—that's what we got termed. This person is non-compliant with treatment. What does that really mean? Non-compliant—they didn't do what you said. Did we? Did we even ask why? I'm sure you've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If I have food insecurity and I don't have stable housing, I may not remember to take my meds. Yeah, <laughs> I got a surprise. Yeah.
0: yeah. And that doesn't
1: mean that I'm non-compliant. It means that I have other psychosocial issues that need to be addressed in order to make me successful in managing my diabetes. And so I just, I love what you said. And I love that you're thinking like that, because I do believe with Gen Z and millennials as they continue to grow, they're so different. And I think they're going, they're going to go in. Mm -hmm with the partnership because they already are on the internet diagnosing themselves before because they've always had the internet and the information right there. And so I think the a shift will happen. And I'm really excited that there are people, there are physicians like you who are thinking this way. I
0: see it as this, like this time of patient empowerment and how, how can we make sure that we're lifting everyone up? And as as healthcare professionals, how can we recognize that everyone that walks in our doors is traumatized in some way? Yes. Some more than others. There's a trauma Olympics, but you know, Mm -hmm. some more than others and some quite a few have been traumatized at the hands of the medical establishment. So
1: true. So true. And so you already go in into that relationship with a leg down because they've had previous experiences that weren't good but because of the limited amount of time that you even have with your physician how much yeah. time do you even have to get to know to get to know each other and know the things that are important like they need to your doc needs to know what's important to you things like your faith your family and those type of things because that frames the treatment and it just has to be a collaborative relationship
0: that's yeah. the only way it's going to be successful Yeah. And I know it sounds like you have really been working to curate your healthcare team. Yeah.
1: Yes. I have an amazing doctor. Her name is Dr. Jill Wagner and she's here in Dallas and she, um, I would say she's the one that's empowered me. I told this story during my TED talk, but I went to see her. I don't even remember what it was for, but whatever the issue was, it had been going on for a little bit. And I was also dealing with some personal issues. And so she asked me what took me so long to come in. And I told her, I said, one, I just don't have the motivation. I've been dealing with some depression. And then two, I know I've gained some weight and I know she has a sign in her office that says we will no longer take excuses for not working out. I said, I just didn't want to deal with that. I haven't felt good. And I haven't felt like doing anything. And yes, I've been feeding my feelings. And I just didn't want to deal with the scale. And she said that the scale is keeping you from taking care of yourself. We just won't weigh you. And she told her, her medical assistant right then and there to put that in my trial. Let's not weigh Ms. Hopper for six months or something like that. And I just started bawling. I was already on the edge anyway. And I just started bawling and she gave me a hug and she was just amazing. And um, she does a lot, or she did a lot of things in the community before she started her concierge practice, as far as educating us about gut health and things like that. And I would go to these seminars, and she didn't gain anything. She, I think it was a $10 admission, but you got her book, which was $15. So I don't know. And then she had to rent the venue. So I don't know. She didn't make anything. Yeah, just to, yeah, it just was to a kind of get
0: the word out. Loss. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And she said it, that was important to her, but because of insurance and all, the whole system. She didn't have that type of, to talk with her patients like that. So she did these Saturday seminars and I learned so much about myself and I felt so empowered to take control of my health and to just really be able to talk to her. And she listens to me. I absolutely recognize that she's an expert. And so I certainly listen to her, but I bring my concerns to her as well. Because of my mom, I want to ensure that I stay here longer than she did because she died at 68. Mm-hmm. So one of my first things I needed to do was to establish myself with a cardiologist because I'm her daughter and I want to make sure my heart is good. So I've done that. I actually chose her cardiologist because the one that treated her in the hospital was simply amazing. I chose him because I liked him and we talked and everything was good. And for any other specialists that I need. I am very intentional about looking them up, seeing what their reviews are, how they respond to those reviews, all of those things. When I go in to see them, that relationship really matters to me. If it's not a good fit for me and it's not something that we can address, then I'll find a provider that is a good fit for me because I need to be comfortable going to my medical appointments. I need to feel like I'm heard. And I need to feel like my position and I are working towards the same goal.
0: Yeah. There's so much to be said for that feeling heard, seen, and believed. Yes. Oh yeah. my
1: gosh. The believed part. My goodness. So true. I'm just giving my whole TED talk again, but I want to be. Example but we're going to make sure you. everyone
0: goes and listens to it. Cause it. Yes. It looks- I got chills and tears and all the things while I it was. I
1: gave the example of Serena Williams. Many people know when she had her daughter that she had previously had blood clots and she felt like she was having those symptoms again. They weren't listening and she demanded a test and turns out they ended up having to do an emergency surgery. But historically, we know that women of color, especially black women, our pain, people don't hear our pain. I actually was at work at the university and we did some training. There was a speaker there that gave us a stat. I don't remember what it was, but it just talked about how um, Black women, any women of color, they're not believed when they say that they're having pain. She did a poll in the room of 100 of our faculty, which is very diverse. And she asked what kind of meds people had gotten. There was a Latin woman who had two C-sections and she said she was told after maybe getting four or five hydrocodone to take Advil. And then there was a white woman who had gone to the dentist and gotten fillings and got 10 oxypses. So we really saw what a difference it was just even in giving pain meds because in the past we were told, people thought that we didn't feel pain and it's just amazing. So um, believed is a really big part of it.
0: I'll never forget. And I feel terrible because I don't recall, I'm really terrible for remembering names, but there was a female physician, woman of color in mm-hmm. Indianapolis during the pandemic who was in the hospital. She's a board certified physician and no one would believe or treat her pain. And sh- she ended up passing away. Like oh, it, was, gosh. it was like live tweeting like this situation that was horrific. Wow. Wow. And you're like, you know, what came to mind and in a lot of discussions, especially within primarily female physician communities I'm in, even a medical degree is not enough. Like What the, you know, like, and of course followed by some, we try to keep the language clean on the podcast, but
1: yeah. I'm going to whip that story up. I, I don't know about that. And
0: that's so tragic. It was, it was absolutely tragic. And, yeah, and the Serena story just hit it. I guess it hits home even just that little bit more because she and I have the same underlying autoimmune condition. Yeah.
1: It's very sobering. When, as you were talking, we, we were talking, we were talking about BIPOC communities and people of color and women. But another thing that I see in my practice is Age and not my ageism as far as older people. We know that's an issue, but sometimes when people are really young, you're too young to be said. I work with a client, and she had a baby. It was the most horrific, traumatic experience ever. It's now three years later, and Mm -hmm. I'm still treating her for PTSD. She can barely leave her house, and it was because they didn't believe her when she was telling them that she wasn't doing okay because she was 19 and having a baby. I guess they just assumed she. She didn't know what she was talking about. She ended up losing some some vision, something called help syndrome, which I had never even heard of. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: It had been going on for hours and she kept telling them and no one believed her. No one believed her because she was young. (sighs) Yeah.
0: I think what's really sobering and where I am still. Just every day trying to know better, do better, recognizing the reality of how different that would be if roles were reversed, then, okay, how can I just keep trying to take steps to live in an anti-racist way as best possible? Every interaction,
1: every person that you see, that you, you hear, that you believe, it makes a difference because even if that person never even sees you again. You planted that seed and they know that this can be that way. And that's what's important. When I talk about my doctor, I don't know that I was this empowered before. She was very instrumental. As a matter of fact, I had to make a really big decision about an upcoming surgery. And I scheduled an appointment just to weigh the pros and cons with her because that's how much I fully trust her. She did just that. She didn't recommend anything. She just talked about, okay, this happened. These are some things you can consider. And if you make this decision, these are some things you could you should consider. She was the one that I wanted to run it by because I fully trust her. She knows my history. And we've been working together for a while. I value her expert opinion as well. But my medical appointment was just for that. Then of course she gave me a hug.
0: <laughs> it is nice to be able to start getting back to that point where we can. Have a little bit more of that sort of healing interaction too. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So I would love to be able to share where people could connect with you. If maybe they have an event or something that Mm -hmm. might, that you might fit a paid speaker, or if people wanted to see you for therapy, like, how does that work? How can people connect with you?
1: That's perfect. I am. Thank you for the and I'll make sure to, to link out. all
0: these in the show notes too. Okay. Okay. Absolutely.
1: I am still doing therapy, but I have a very small group of people that I see because I teach full time. And so I'm not generally accepting new patients. I am at a point in my career where I am really like going out and doing education workshops, speaking. Awesome. That's what I enjoy. That's what I'm wanting to do more of. So if Anyone in your audience is interested in having me to be a speaker, and I speak about a variety of topics, all things trauma, of course, traumatic grief, lots of things about suicide, homicide. I'm actually a volunteer with Survivors of Blue Suicide, which is mm-hmm. our it's about, um, police family members of uh, police officers who have died by suicide. All of those topics are just things that are taboo, but we must talk about them to reduce the stigma. And that's what I do. As a matter of fact, last week, I even did a grand rounds for Texas Health Resources. They they asked me to do it, and I did it November 1st. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. But Everyone knows it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And so my, the title of my presentation was Don't Forget the Purple. That's the color of the ribbon for domestic violence awareness. I talked to all of them because it was an audience of physicians, social workers, nurses, everyone. And I talked to them of the importance of understanding one the dynamics of domestic violence so you don't do any further harm. To recognize that the goal is to help the person stay safe and not to leave their relationship. A lot of people go straight to that and that's not the goal. The goal is to keep the person safe. So we talked about the tools that we can use, ways that we can screen safely in healthcare, and ways that we could keep from making the situation worse. So there are a variety of topics that I can talk about. Also on DEI, I'm also certified, to, certified in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Also add social justice to that. So With that said, my website is my name, www.kibaharper.com. If you go to my website, it's mostly geared towards my clients, but you will be able to find where to follow me on social media. My name is not that common. So if you just Google Kiba Harper, LCSW, you'll find whatever social media platform you like. I do a lot of just awareness and education through my social media as well. But yes, I travel. I love to speak. I love to teach. I love doing workshops for healthcare professionals and others. So that's how they can reach me. Thank you for letting me share that.
0: Thank you. Oh my goodness. Thank you. And we're both like so excited to see our TED Talks Eventually go on the TED stage. Yes. We'll have to update it once that's available. Yes. So we can put that in the show notes. <laughs> we can go back and tweak stuff once that's finally released. I love it. Because um, <laughs> it really, it was approximately 12 minutes of just a really compelling yeah. story. And and as any TED talk, morals to the story. So but. many cool
1: people there. That was the best part. I got to meet you. Just some other amazing people. Amazing that was the best events. part. Yeah. I love that. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for your time, your energy, your spirit, for all the amazing work you're doing in the world. Thank you. And thank you for doing the same. (laughs) If you have found this information helpful and empowering, I would strongly encourage you to hop over to www.crunchyallergist.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we dive into all things allergy, autoimmunity, and anti-inflammatory living. Thanks so much for tuning in. I look forward to talking again next week.